Hebrews chapter 1, verse, uh, for, rather, <laughs> chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed entered that rest, just as God has said, and we saw this passage a lot last week, Psalm 95, uh, as God has said, so I declared on my anger, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also, also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The general rule of thumb in preaching is you have about two to three minutes in the beginning of a sermon to capture people's attention. Uh, That's what they teach you in seminary, or I suppose that's the the standard for all rhetorical exercises, be it speech or, or writing. You have to grab people's attention at the beginning and demonstrate the relevance of the subject that that, uh, you're trying to speak about so that people want to listen and are motivated for the next 30 or so minutes. But I think with today's topic, I don't have to work very hard to show you that this is relevant. The fact is, you and I, we don't get enough rest. Uh, The fact is, this room is filled with hurried, busy, tired people. Some of us are just so exhausted and worn out. You you can see the bags under our eyes. And if we had some type of spiritual microscope, you could see the bags under our souls. Statistics back this up. The average American gets two and a half fewer hours of sleep per night than a century ago. 40 million Americans get fewer than six hours of sleep per night. It's estimated that more than 75% of all doctor's visits are for stress-related or fatigue-related illnesses. There are plenty of studies out there which indicate the strong correlation between busyness and heart disease, diabetes, asthma, and depression. Uh, One of the other reasons why we're so tired is we suffer from, from work encroachment. Thanks primarily to our cell phones, work seeps into every nook and cranny of our lives so that now anybody can get a hold of us at any time. Uh, We have access to the world thanks to the internet, and the world has access to us completely, always, always. Another reason why we're so tired, there's really not much job, job security in the world today. 
It used to be that you could graduate from college, or maybe you didn't even have to go to college. You graduate, and you could work for the same company for 50 years. Uh, Those days are long gone. We have to work very hard to keep our jobs, to keep them from being outsourced, and, and we're tired. We're tired, but we cannot sleep. What's your drug of choice? Is it Lunestra, Ambien, Advil PM, Yellowtail? Did you know that approximately 90% of all sleep aids are marketed to women? Because moms can't slow down. I got to get the kids to soccer. I got to get the kids to tutoring. Uh, There's dance. I got to get them to. There's mock trial. I got to get them to. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Get them in the car. We got to go. We got to go. And moms can't sleep. Some of us dads can't sleep either. And the thing is, our restlessness is not merely a schedule problem. I mean, there's tons of self-help books out there and plenty of medications, and yet we still have this problem because it's not a schedule problem. It's not a technique problem. Our restlessness of heart, you can have all the vacations and all the days off that you possibly could desire, and yet that's not going to It's not going to answer the deep restlessness of heart because our restlessness is a spiritual problem. Brian um, quoted Eugene Peterson. I'll quote him again. He says, he says that busyness is an illness of the spirit. Busyness is an illness of the spirit. Well, what then is the cure? Two questions I want us to try and ask and answer today from Hebrews chapter 4. The first is, number one, what is the rest that the author is speaking about here? What is the rest? And then number two, what are the different ways that we can enter into that rest? What is the rest and how can we enter in? Uh, It's a complicated argument. I don't know. As we were reading through, did you notice? It's it's nearly impossible to follow his train of thought. It's very difficult to understand. And today, the reason he's so difficult to understand is not so much the difficulty of his quotations of the Old Testament, but he is using the word rest, not univocally, but equivocally. Rest here, there's four different kinds of rest that he talks about in these 11 verses. Four rest, and the first of that is creation rest. We're told in the passage that God spent six days creating, and then he rested on the seventh day, creation rest. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought, where do, where do weeks come from? I can understand where days and months and years come from. Days, months, and years are all, they're all tied to, connected to scientific phenomena, right? The rotation of the earth, 24 hours, that's a day. The, the months are closely connected to the lunar cycles, and the years are obviously the revolution around the sun. But where, where do we get weeks from? Because weeks has, has, there's no scientific connection to them. I mean, they're entirely arbitrary. And yet they're found in every single culture and society around the world today. Where do they come from? Well, they come from the fact that God created the weak. Even non-Christian societies. God made the weak. Six days of work, one day of rest. On the seventh day, God looked out over all that he had made, and he was utterly satisfied with it. He said, it is good. It's very good. It is finished. And then he rested. 
Here's the analogy that I've heard to, to kind of describe this. If you've ever, those of you who like to work with your hands, if you have ever built a boat before, great deal of energy in building a boat. I mean, a whole lot of hammering and sawing, planing, screwing, you're, you're working. It's a lot of work. And when you're all done with your, your, your creative activity, after you've finished making a boat, what do you do? Do you, do you go and take a nap? No, probably not. Most likely what you do is you jump in the boat and you go for a sail. You sail the boat. When God rested on the seventh day, we know that this was not the rest of exhaustion. It's not him collapsing onto the couch with the TV remote in his hand, out of breath saying, I can't take any more of this. This was the rest of, uh, of enjoyment. God goes on to rule and to enjoy all that he has made. And we're told that he invited mankind into this, into this joy, the joy of his rest. We're told that in the beginning, mankind experienced a walking with God in the cool of the garden. We knew the joy of his good resting. We, um, we, we, we went on a, 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 a sailing trip with him every day. Every day was like that. Until we lost it. We, we broke our relationship with God. We broke our relationship with the world and with each other. And we've been on the hamster wheel ever since. Every day's work is not the, 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 the creative, um, restful type of work that existed in the garden. We're just on the hamster wheel or in the hamster little bubble that they go around on the floor. Just run, 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 run. And we've never been able to get off. We have lost creation rest. Second one, Sabbath rest. The idea of Sabbath runs throughout the scripture, and we find it being picked up later in Deuteronomy chapter 15, where we read, where we read this, that you are to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath we're to remember the Sabbath day. And if you're a husband and you go to your husband or you go to your wife and you say, I remember today is our anniversary. I, I remember it. But you haven't planned anything for that day. You haven't bought any gifts. There are no roses on the table. There's no, there's no ring from K Jewelers in the, in the box. If you haven't done anything for the day, then you haven't remembered it. Because remembering is, is quite a bit more than accessing your cerebral cortex. Remember means that you put it into practice. And this is what they were to put into practice. Sabbath, Sabbath was an act of liberation. 430 years they spent and they never got a day off as slaves. Sabbath was an act of liberation. Where they, uh, and it, it's the same today. When we are willing to put our work down for 24 hours, we are saying that we are free. We are doing something countercultural and revolutionary. We are saying, I am free. I am a free man. I'm a free woman. I am free from my materialistic society that surrounds me. Uh, 
I am declaring my freedom from the child-centric, I've got to give my child every opportunity under the sun so that they can you know, be an astronaut or an Olympic gymnast or a, a pitcher in the major leagues. I am free from that. When we take the 24 hours and remember it by putting it into practice, we are declaring our freedom. There's a word for people who refuse to take a day off. That word is slaves. You know, not to put it too punchy, but I... I if you cannot put it down, put your work away, put it, your slaves, the Bible says. And by remembering the Sabbath, we're saying we're not slaves anymore. So we have creation rest, Sabbath rest. The third use, entrance into the promised land is seen as rest. A promised land was, was rest land. There in the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey, there there they were their own bosses. There they could make their own uh, schedules. There they could sleep in their own houses. You know, when we go away on a vacation, no matter how good the vacation is, near the end of the vacation, we always say, I can't wait to get home so that I can sleep in my own bed. That there in the promised land, for the first time in their lives, they were able to sleep in their own bed. I can't wait to get home. Promised land, promised rest. There's a catch, though, and this is where the argument, it hinges upon this idea that when David writes Psalm 95, if you want to hear a lot about Psalm 95, go back and listen to last week's sermon. When David writes Psalm 95, the, the psalm that's quoted over these two chapters, the people are already in Canaan, aren't they? They're already established in the land of Israel. They're already in promised land, rest land, and yet he says, they're still not experiencing my rest, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day in Psalm 95 through David of, of even more rest. They were, there's a greater rest, in other words. Now, parenthetical uh, uh, side note real quick. You know that the name Joshua in Hebrew and in Greek is the name Jesus. They're identical. So when you read in verse 8 here that if Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, the word there is Jesus, which is the word Jesus. And some of the old translations mistakenly translate verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest, they, they mistakenly substitute Jesus for Joshua, which made for a very confusing translation because you're supposed to, there's supposed to be a parallel, but there's a, especially supposed to be a contrast between the two. Joshua only gave them some kind of temporary, a temporary rest. It's Jesus who brings us into the, the final rest. And what is the final rest in this passage? What is the final rest? It's, it's the rest of heaven. It's, it's the rest of the garden, you know, renewed, restored. And it's the rest that the author of Hebrews is, is really quite worried that the Jewish Christians he's writing to are going to miss out on. He is afraid that his church, that there are people in his church who, who are here today, who think they're saved today, who think they believe in Jesus today, but that he's afraid that there are people who will, who will end up not actually entering into the rest, just like the people of the Old Testament didn't enter into the promised land. You know, the, the Bible is sober. It warns us about insincere faith or, or faith that's hot one day but, but doesn't persevere uh, to the end, much, you know, much like the people in the Old Testament. Found a very interesting 
uh, I guess you'd say, geographic um, piece of information this week. Do you have any idea how long it takes to walk from the edge of the Red Sea into, the, into Canaan, into the promised land? How long is that journey? It is, it is 11 days. Only 11 days from the edge of the Red Sea to the promised land. And how long did it take them? It took them 40 years. And they never entered God's rest because of unbelief. So the author is saying to them, to us, we, we must persevere in faith. Um, we must go through many, many trials of, uh, and hardships of faith. We have to you know, go through that, that awful dark tunnel for long distances. What Paul says, we must go through many hardships before we, we enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of rest. And here, the author of Hebrews says parenthetically, or not parenthetically, paradoxically, he says, you must strive to make every effort to enter into that rest. Isn't that a strange paradox? I'm striving, I'm every effort to rest. But by that he means you, you have to keep believing the gospel. You've, you've got to keep coming back to the gospel and believing it and, and persevering through, through, through what, you're, what you're presently in. So there you have it. There's the theological part of the passage. Creation rest, Sabbath rest, promised land rest, and heavenly rest. I want to move on to the second question, which is the much more practical question, and that is, what are the different ways how do, how do we enter into God's rest? Not surprisingly, as a Presbyterian pastor, I'm going to begin by saying that you, one of the ways that you enter into God's rest is by using Sunday as, as Sabbath, as Sabbath rest. When you think of a person, when you think of a person who rigorously observes the Sabbath, what kind of picture comes in your mind. What is that person like? Is, is a rigorous observer of the Sabbath the kind of person who's very relaxed and chilled? <laughs> and, and no, I mean, when I think of that, I think of somebody who's really tightly wound up. They are all torqued up. They have this long list of do's and don'ts, which you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Laura Ingalls Wilder, the Laura from Little House on the Prairie, her parents were rigorous observers of the Sabbath, which meant as a little girl, she could never go outside on Sunday afternoon to play. She was never allowed to run around in the woods or in the fields on sunny, sunny Sunday afternoons and laugh and enjoy outside. Her dad made her sit in a straight-back chair indoors and, and listen to him read the Bible or recite the catechism all afternoon. Is that is that the idea that we have here of Sabbath rest? No. Another pastor uh, who grew up in a strict Dutch Reformed church family, he said, on Sunday, we would go to church in the morning, then we'd come home, and I was forced to take a nap. I hated that as a kid. And if you have to force the kid to take a nap, that's the way. He said, I would go into my room, and I just would count the, the seconds until I could finally Get out! But even when I got out of my room, it wasn't very, very much fun because I couldn't ride my bike on Sundays. Um, you could work, but not to the point of sweating. <laughs> there was disagreement about whether we could swim in our pool. My dad said yes after the evening service. My mom wasn't so sure. <laughs> 
One of the ways we enter into this rest uh, is by celebrating a joyful Sunday. You celebrate a joyful Sunday. Going back to my boat analogy, this, is, this day is supposed to be like a day at sea. Um, this day should be the, the best day of the week for us, for our friends and for our families. Uh, because this day is the, the day of, of, of joyful, celebratory Sabbath rest. And the author of Hebrews says that, that this day is an anticipation of our full and final Sabbath rest, which comes in heaven. And surely heaven is not dull and boring where we sit in high back chairs all day and recite the catechism. I mean, after the resurrection, there's a whole world to explore, a whole universe to see, to see the, uh, as Brian said, the, the creative artistry of God. I think we as parents have a tremendous responsibility to make this day uh, to the best we can the happiest day of the week in our homes. This should be the, the happiest day that we, ha- we experience. Um, so here's a question for you. What could you do that you're not doing right now to make this day a delight? That's a good question to ask in your community groups. What can I be doing to make Sunday a holiday? Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be Christmas every week. Now, I realize the Pharisees turned it into a whole list of rules and regulations. I mean, imagine, imagine you had somebody telling you, they're giving you all the different presents that you're not allowed to provide at Christmas and all of the different ways you're not allowed to decorate your tree and all the different songs that you're not allowed to sing. I mean, if that was Christmas, we wouldn't look forward to that holiday either. That's what they did to the Sabbath day. But, but Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. The, the Sabbath is, is, uh, is not made for, the Sabbath is made for man. The, the Sabbath is made for, for our delight and enjoyment. Another way that we enter into God's rest, um, it's simple, but we exercise deep trust. We exercise trust. That's, um, you know, on, on the one hand, Sabbath was, was one of the most remarkable gifts ever given to Israel. When we look through human history, I don't think there is ever another people group in the in all of human history, who were given one day out of seven off. It was a uniquely kind gift to Israel. But on the other hand, it required an extraordinary trust in God that God's six days would be enough. It, it takes a lot of trust to believe that six is enough. Wasn't there a TV show, Eight is Enough? Or <laughs> six, is, six is Enough they said, to plant the crops, to gather the harvest, to build the barns, to forge the weapons, to train the army. All of the other nations that were surrounding them were were gaining an advantage in working. Uh, They said, the the great Boston Celtic Larry Bird, somebody once asked him, Larry, why is it that you can't relax? And he said, the reason I can't relax is every time when I go to sit down, I think of my opponent and I know my opponent is practicing. What happens when your opponent is practicing to kill you? (laughs) That was Israel. And she had to trust God that six days would be enough and and not plunge her into economic or military ruin. Tremendous trust. Do the calculations. What is one divided by seven? That's 14%. 14% 
14% of all of Israel's life was devoted to worshiping God in sheer inactivity. (laughs) That takes trust. So I would ask you this. Can you trust God enough to stop? That's the number one question. Can you trust God enough? Can you forsake productivity today? Can you say, I'm not going to do the dishes today. I'm not going to do the taxes today. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to grade the papers today. I'm not going to do my homework today. Uh, I think that my kids are maybe the only kids in their school who are not allowed to do homework on Sundays. And they, I don't think they love me for that, but (laughs) I'm hoping one day they will appreciate it. Can you put down your homework today? Can you, when you hear me say, uh, don't work on, on today, it, it probably, that sounds terrible. It just sounds terrible to some of you. It, it sounds like, in the words of one pastor, it sounds like a death. It sounds like death to you. Because, in fact, it is a death. It is a dying to the ways of this world. Because nobody else does this, do they? Nobody takes one in seven. It is a, it is a dying to, to yourself and to your rule, and to your established rhythms and preferences. Can you, can you trust God enough to stop? Another author writes in a book on busyness. He says, okay, yeah, yeah, we are busy. Most, we are busy people, but many of us are probably not as busy as we think that we are. What happens is because of technology, work and rest they all kind of mesh together, mash together in this amalgamation so that we, our days just lack, lack rhythm. Our weeks lack rhythm. Um, we never quite leave work when we're at home, so the next day we have a hard time getting back to work when we are at work. We, we're never completely on, and we're never totally off. So we dawdle on YouTube for 20 minutes at the office, And then catch up on emails for 40 minutes in front of the TV at home. Perhaps this arrangement works for some employers and may feel freeing for many employees. But over time, most of us work less effectively, whether it's in the home or out of the home. And we find our work less enjoyable because there just simply isn't rhythm. There's no regularly concentrated this then and that that now. Can you trust God enough to stop? You would think this would be good news. (laughs) The God of the universe comes to you and says, I give you a day off. I give you a day. You don't have to grind it today. You think we'd be, we would be doing cartwheels and jumping up and down and celebrating. God says you don't have to grind today and you shouldn't be grinding today. But the reason why we don't celebrate is because it's so hard to flip the switch from, from on to off. I remember... It was about 10 years ago. Aaron and I went to, on vacation to Hawaii. It's the greatest vacation we ever took together, the biggest vacation we ever took together. And I was all torqued up about uh, pastoring and struggling so much at that point as a pastor. You get to on your vacation, it, it took me two to three days to just vacation. I was wound so wound up so tightly. Have you ever experienced that too? You go on vacation, the first two days of vacation are not vacation because you're, you're so used to being on. And then the other part of it is when you get to the last two days of vacation, 
you start to feel that overwhelming anxiety about going back on. I mean, the last two days of vacation aren't vacation either because it's so hard to, to flip the switch of, of rest, work. Our switches are all messed up because our, the rhythm is all messed up. I think it's only going to happen if you start to calibrate uh, your belief, your belief in that God wants me to have this day off and uh, I'll practice. I get a weekly opportunity to practice flipping on and off, on and off. It's got to be a holiday for me and my family. Secondly, and this is the most important part, leads me to the second and deeper part of rest. We enter the rest of God by hearing and believing the gospel. I already said that earlier, but it is, it is the truth. By hearing and believing, deep believing with all your heart. Uh, verse 2, it says that we have had the good news proclaimed to us. We have had the gospel proclaimed to us just like Israel had it proclaimed to them. And he goes on in verse 10, anyone who enters God's rest must also rest from his own work. Did you catch that? To, to believe the gospel, the, uh, the other side of the coin of believing the gospel is you resting from your, your work, um, your For me, it means resting from having to prove myself. Um, I think that's one of the things that the rest provides us. It enables us to keep from having to prove ourselves. You say, who am I trying to prove myself to? Do I try to God maybe? But um, remember in the movie Rocky, when Rocky Balboa, I think he's having a conversation with Adrian and She's saying, oh, don't go fight, don't do it. And he says, Adrian, the reason, I have to, the reason I have to go the distance in the round with Apollo Creed, do you remember why he said? The reason I have to go the distance against Apollo Creed is to prove to myself that I'm not a bum. Remember that? I have to prove to myself I'm not a bum. And so all of the training and the sit-ups and the getting strong now and running up the stairs there in Philadelphia, all of that was just to prove to him to himself that he's not a bum. And I, when you hear that, some of you men out there, you, you know exactly what he's talking about. This is especially a male issue. I've got to prove. I've got to prove myself to my colleagues. I've got to prove that I'm worth, worth my keep. Um, I've got to prove. What do I have to prove? What? What have, what have you felt as though you have to prove? Would you answer that question? What do I feel like I have to prove? Uh, for me, I've had to prove that I'm intelligent. <laughs> My SAT scores were not nearly as good as the, guy, as the kids I graduated with who ended up going to Harvard and Princeton and Stanford. So I had to prove that my SAT score wasn't me. Um, I had to prove that I'm tough. Because I was told many times that I was soft. And I think I was. And, and am. I have, I've had to prove that I'm not lazy. That I work hard enough. That, that I'm, I'm worth my keep as a pastor. Um, what is it that you find yourself that you need to rest from? In believing the gospel. Our faith is all about finding deep rest of soul in Jesus alone. In the gospel, we cease from our work in order to rest in Christ and, and his work. We, we existentialize we, the, the, the invitation from Jesus. We hear his voice, 
where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, Come to me. What an invitation. Um, You shouldn't hear in this sermon, uh, God, why are you working so much? Why are you, you should hear the voice of Jesus saying, "Are, are you weary? Are you weary? Yeah, mentally check that box. Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? By all the expectations, by this and that, yeah, check that box, that I will give you rest. It enables us to have to keep from proving ourselves. When we find our rest in Jesus Christ, we, we just go deeper and deeper into the idea that my value and security come from having a father who loves me and comes from having Jesus who covered me in his righteousness. We just, we know that, but we go deeper and deeper with that. We, we say, we have to rehearse to ourselves. It does not come from my performance. It does not come, in my case, from how well I preach. It does not come, in my case, by how well my kids are doing. It doesn't come from how secure my bank account is. It comes from one place. And you just have to always keep going back to that one place. And then, secondly... I believe that rest in Jesus Christ gives a wonderful order to our week. There is a wonderful Christian logic to the idea of Sabbath rest in Jesus. Because you recall that the Jews, they, enter, they rested at the end of their week. They, they rested, rested after they had done everything and they, they had worked so hard. But, but our rest gets moved to Sunday. Our rest becomes at the beginning of the week. Our rest is not when we've checked off everything on our to-do list. Our rest comes because Jesus was resurrected today. And that's, that's my life. I rest because Jesus lived and died for me. And he said it is finished. We rest, we rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the week. Um, that's what we celebrate. I hope we celebrate that when we, when we worship. And I tell people, you should come to church You should come to church even if you don't get nothing out of the sermon. Because at a very minimum, you will get food for weary people. Isn't that what this is? Is this thing, is bread and wine, is the Lord's Supper not food for the depleted? And and you get that on the very first day of the week. Food for weary people. um, Rest food. So finally, if you believe that your rest was found in Jesus Christ alone, what difference would that make in your life? Maybe that's one of the questions that you'd, you want to consider later today. If, my, if I was deeper and deeper into the rest of Christ, what, what difference would that make in my, my life? Um, I don't want to suggest that it, fix it, it fixes it all. Um, I mean, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus was resurrected from the, the dead. You trust in Jesus. For, you, can, you can do all of that, and you can, you can be on the anti-anxiety, anti-depression medications. You can, you can rake the sand in your Zen garden. You can, do, you can exercise very vigorously, and you, you can f- celebrate a, a, a good Sabbath day, and you could still feel very tired. Because this world is so broken in sin. Um, I'm not suggesting that if you just follow the dictates of the sermon, it will, fix, it will fix everything. But it will help. It'll help. To conclude, um, 
Stephen Curtis Chapman, popular Christian musician, his autobiography is going to come out, Shulton told me, in another couple months. But I don't know if you know his story. It was a terrible, tragic event 10 years ago. So he and his wife, they had three biological children, and they ended up adopting three Chinese little girls. So they had a family of six. Their 17-year-old son was driving home one day to the mansion in Nashville. He's pulling into the, the driveway in the family SUV. And one of the little Chinese girls, the, the four-year-old daughter, so excited that her older brother has, has come home. Maybe he was coming. I don't know what he was coming home for. But she runs out into the driveway, and, and he hits her. And she, she's laying there in the driveway, fatally wounded, I mean, can you think of anything worse than, can, I know to lose a child is the worst thing in the world, but can you imagine you know, losing a child that way? So uh, Stephen Chris Chapman, he hears the, the screams and the commotion. He runs out into the driveway. He sees her, her little body there, and he, he scoops her up into his arms and carries her into the car to try and rush her to the hospital and save her. But before he pulls out, he rolls down the window of his car, and he looks at his 17-year-old son, and he says, uh, he says, Will Franklin, your father loves you. And you know, Imagine being the 17-year-old boy who kills your four-year-old daughter, but in, in that, that moment of, of desperation, the lowest moment of his life, the father speaks right through the fog and says, Boy, whatever you do, whatever you become, I love you. And brothers and sisters, you need to hear, hear God say that to you. And maybe, maybe he might even, you could hear him speaking that to you in the sermon today. Deep spiritual rest comes from hearing those words. Believing the gospel, persevering in the gospel, hearing of the Father's love. That, I, I, that, brings, that brings rest to the weary soul.